Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. For nearly three decades, the UN has been bringing together almost every country on earth for global climate summits called COPs, Conferences of the Parties. In that time, climate change has gone from being a fringe issue to a global priority. COP26 is the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, and this year will be the 26th annual summit. With the UK as president, COP26 takes place in Glasgow. And joining us to talk all things COP tonight are Andy Middleton, a noted voice on the environment and climate in Wales, but also Chief Exploration Officer at TYF Adventure. Hello, Andy. Hello and good evening. Great to be here with you. Thank you very much for joining us. We've also got with us Kate Evans, who is an energy and construction lawyer at Capital Law, green energy and sustainability enthusiast and Kennel Company trustee. Hello, Kate. Hi there. And finally, we have Mark Linus, uh, who is an environmental writer and author of Our Final Warning, Six Degrees of Climate Emergency, which is out now, uh, as well as a CVF and Science Ally fellow. Hello, Mark. Hi there. Kerry, I think you're starting us off with questions this week. Yeah, Mark, I was uh, interested in your writing. So uh, what I really want you to do tonight is to, can you just set the scene for us as you would, as you did in our, in our, in our final warning? Yeah, okay. Um, you, I mean, the, the, those of you who follow the kind of climate change scene and read the media about this story and the issue will be familiar with a lot of people saying, this is our last chance to, you know, what, whatever X, Y, and Z. The thing is, though, that COP26 in Glasgow pretty much is our last chance to meet the Paris goals of, um, in, a, in particular, the 1.5 degree Paris goal, which is that global temperature shouldn't be allowed to rise past 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. We're currently about 1.2, by the way. If emissions carry on rising as they pretty much are, then we'll cross that level, I don't know, sometime around in the, in the early 2030s. So it's a pretty imminent issue, particularly given that to meet the 1.5 degree target, we have to reduce emissions by about 45% by 2030. Now, we're not going to do that if we put it off till 2025 or 2026 or, you know, 2029. It's pretty much 2021. COP26 is the last chance to get the big emitting countries to put on the table pledges to reduce their emissions, which is commensurate with this 1.5 degree target. And for them to do so is voluntary. It's up to them. It's up to China. It's up to India. It's up to the United States. It's up to the United Kingdom to volunteer what they're going to do to meet to, to, to meet this Paris goal. And if you put all of the pledges, the, the, the pledges, by the way, there's, there's, there's kind of acronyms for everything in COP language, as, you, as you'll see from COP. These are called NDCs, which are Nationally Determined Contributions. So the NDCs collectively of all of the world's countries and all of the parties to the convention, hence COP, are supposed to meet this target. Uh, although, of course, they don't. I mean, currently, if you put all of the NDCs together and all of the governments actually meet their pledges, which is a, a tall order, it comes in at about 2.4 degrees. So we're well beyond even the two degrees, like upper limit level that was uh, agreed at 2015 in Paris. Thanks, Mark. Kate, building on what Mark said, this is 30 years the UN have been hosting these conferences now. And recently, Greta, who is the voice of climate change for us all, has said, the great and the good, it's just blah, blah, blah. This meeting now in Glasgow has to be the time to act, doesn't it? It does indeed. And as you say, as what alluded to um, just then, is that even with the kind of contributions that leading countries are making at this stage, it's still not good enough. But as as you say, as Greta said, you know, the time for, for talking is pretty much over. We've gone past that. It's time for the actual, you know, commitments that we're talking about to be um, to be pushed forward. I noticed in the news just before this podcast, this already been pushed out our um, part of the Paris Agreement. Basically, each country uh, is going to be spending $100 billion a year in climate finance to help the poor countries who are, you know, experience the coalface of climate change at the moment. It's supposed to be this big fund that's supposed to be all the different countries could be contributing to. That was supposed to be happening by 2020. It's already been pushed back now to 2023. So the COP hasn't even started yet, but you're seeing these slow erosions of, you know, we're just going to keep on kicking the can down the road. And it's just, we can say whatever we want, but unless we actually start doing things, it's not going to um, manifest itself and anything getting better, is it? No. Andy, you know, so both Mark and Kate have mentioned those kind of obligations, the NDCs, as Mark mentioned. And we've had all sorts of announcements uh, in the last week from the UK government, a little bit from Welsh government. Have you heard anything from what's been announced so far that has really struck home with you or has it just been blah, blah, blah? 
I suppose what still strikes me is the incredible lack of ambition. And, that, the, and the, the 100 billion figure that Kate just mentioned is a really lovely, a lovely example because it's roughly the same amount of money that's invested just in Wales in pensions and ISAs. So if the people of Wales chose to pivot their savings to something green, which is a pretty smart thing to do just in terms of investment returns, let alone climate impact, Wales by itself could finance that entire budget. To give you a sense, of like a country of 3 million people could put the same amount of money on the table through their pensions as been pledged by all of the industrial nations around this climate. So I think there's a really, I think there's what's missing is the big enough ambition to say, well, this is how we do things. But I guess what, what strikes me at a Wales level, having spent the morning with a bunch of great people from the heads of the valleys, um, the valleys regional park, and this afternoon with a bunch of medics, this stuff, radical action on climate is a, is a conversation topic like it's never been before. And that really does give me hope almost regardless of what comes out of COP. What else should they be doing? You mentioned, or at least alluded to divestment there, or, or, or spending in greener areas, Andy, but what else can government be doing? I think, I think for me, there's, there's a couple of pieces here. I think we, we, we've been, so, and I think part of the blah, blah, blah criticism from Greta comes from the fact that people are trying to solve this stuff still from little silos without people getting in the room to talk to talk to the different you know, create safe space for people from different backgrounds to talk together. And although, you know, there's lots of been lots talked rightly about, you know, what are the big oil giants looking at doing in COP? But there's been very little conversation about you know, the 99% of businesses in Wales that are SMEs. You know, what role can they play in terms of the way they buy things, in terms of the way they engage their customers and where they're doing stuff. So for me, there's a there's a need for joining up around a shared set of values that matter to the future of Wales. And I think particularly here, looking at the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, we've got a real shortage of language, I guess, to talk, to talk about what, what climate change means for my grandchildren in their lives or their children's time, to think about much longer timescales. And I think Wales is in a great place to host some of those conversations. Whilst government doesn't need to have the answers, but it can hold the space for others to try to compare their notes and create ones, better ones together. Hey, what would you like to see? Yeah, no, I agree completely with Andy. I mean, everything is just approaching silos and you get, you know, task force after task force looking into certain things, but then it just becomes increasingly clear that, you know, different reports are not being collaborated on by, you know, people who are like key actors in terms of um, the impacts that can that can happen to them, etc. Um, I think the Welsh Government, in fairness, has got a couple of good policy documents out there where they are starting to think about the thorny issues. And for example, um, the pros Prosperity for All, a low carbon Wales uh, in Canada in 2019 was published. And that's basically sets the foundation for Wales to transition to a low carbon nation. And, you know, you can criticise it and say, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's very, it's very high level at this stage, etc. But I think the risk is if you go in try and go in too detailed over too many broader areas, you're bound to fail, aren't you? So I think the the key thing here and, and what the shame is, particularly around the kind of the, the focus on COP at the moment is you've already got, you know, UK government officials saying, oh, this is going to be really tricky to kind of get everyone around the table. And, and when you introduce politics into something, you know, as, as defined and as this, for, which is going to impact on everybody, you run the risk of, you know, political point scoring or one-upmanship, et cetera. And, and that doesn't, that's not conducive to working together collaboratively. So I think that if, you know, in my opinion, you'd get more people from different ranges of industry, not just, you know, strong lobbyists who have got the money and the power, you'd be listening to the, the countries that are actually facing these terrible, you know, climate impacts already, et cetera. And you'd be putting that at the equal foot in. And as you say, it's, just, it's, a, it's a global issue that needs a global solution, not those silos, which kind of Andy alluded to earlier. Mark, the UK government's come out already with a few, I'm hoping, smaller end announcements, leaving the big ones for, net, for further dates. But so they've had announcements about funding for green cars, an end to gas boilers, enhanced tree planting. I think levelling up funding, if you hear that, it's about public transport. So that, that's some of the key issues I think UK government have uh, brought forward. Do you think they're enough or what else are we look at you looking for, Mark? Well, it, I mean, it's never enough, is it? But um, the, the key thing to look at in terms of international comparisons is uh, there's a website called Climate Action Tracker, which is maintained by an international group of scientists. And they have put together 
Um, so they, they kind of assess all of the different pledges of the different countries and add it all up and see how that how, how that kind of comes together in terms of what the temperature outcome is for the planet, which of course is the thing that we, we all actually care about. And I mean, to be fair, the UK government's contribution NDC, the zero carbon plan is, is rated as almost sufficient, which is a lot better than just about everyone else um, in the world, actually. Um, and, and so the UK government actually is unique. And I never thought I'd see this. I'm putting my political cards on the table. I never thought I'd see this from a Tory government. But we've ac we're actually the only country in the world with a net zero target and which is legally binding through the Climate Change Act. Um, this I'm talking UK level here. And, and, a, a, and a pathway to achieving that through the different carbon budgets, which are put forward by the Climate Change Committee. And now, I mean, the whole thing about gas boilers and getting rid of internal combustion engines and cars by 2030 and stuff, those are all the different uh, elements which then are supposed to make the, the country meet its carbon targets. Now, whether those are achievable or not, politically or economically or anything else, is a, is a different issue. But the policies that exist are actually quite ambitious in terms of, and, and I'm talking from an international perspective because I work with a lot of different governments here. Um, so I think the, the question for us is how we can all come together and actually deliver on these things um, and make sure that... Um, you know that that all the sectors all the sectors contribute, and one one I would highlight particularly is farming, agriculture, which is often left out, but it's a huge issue for Wales. So much of the Welsh landscape is devoted to livestock farming. That's quite greenhouse gas intensive. It also means you don't have any room for reforestation and and stuff like that. So, you know, there's some quite strong and invested lobbies in in these things. It's not just uh, agriculture. It's not just agriculture. There's chemicals. There's all of the heavy industry decarbonizing that's going to be really really tough the technologies don't even exist yet to do that so there's a lot of work that needs to be done but you know in terms of the ambition i think it's there it's for all of us internationally i think if we get a good outcome at cop 26 it'll help add to the momentum and mean that more more countries actually start to put stronger targets on the table and hopefully achieve them kate mark talked to us uh, a little bit about wales there i think that's where i'd like to focus you know it's been uh quite amuses me that um, we're sending a delegation up by train and the boys on the pod will know that I like to remind everyone about the Anglesey flight, which we subsidise. But what have Welsh government said so far around COP? Is it, have we got anything you've picked up on? Or I know there's going to be announcements at, uh, at the event, but is there anything that has come out already that you might want to comment on or even what's been announced since the new government's been formed as well, perhaps? So as you have alluded to, there's a day devoted to COP in at COP26 for smaller nation states and regions. And that's why I understand we're, we're Welsh governments coming in. And I know that Welsh and Scottish governments have been working together as well as part of a group of 260 regional governments around the world kind of called the Under Two Coalition. What I understand just from announcements, et cetera, from Welsh government and how they, um, what they're expecting out of it is basically knowledge sharing between nations similar to our own, where we can kind of take their good ideas and transpose them across, you know, Wales and vice versa. So there's um, been a lot of interest in you know, the Wellbeing and the Future Generations Act, for example, and, and Wales is kind of a, a world leader in, in getting that kind of legislation in and, and using that as a benchmark for decision making in Wales. And Sophie Howe has been um, you know, talking a lot about that, et cetera, as well. So that's something that we can take back to the table in terms of, you know, how can people make decisions more sustainably, et cetera. Um, and I do understand that they've committed to publishing um, its new Net Zero Wales plan on the 28th of October. So it's going to be, it's not out yet, but by the end of this week, it should be released. And that should give us some further details on Welsh Government's plans, basically, for reaching net zero which um, Mark has alluded to as well is Welsh Government have made that commitment in legislation too for net zero by 2050 and they set out as well carbon accounting targets to, to hit us there. In terms of you know Welsh things going on we've got that act the Environment Wales Act 2016 which is what um, and that's the legislation in place that we know they have to meet. Um, and it's, it's kind of recognised that, you know, 2030 is the decadal target for a 63% reduction they're aiming for in reducing greenhouse gases in, in Wales. And um, they've announced that basically this is the decade of action we're in and this is the bit where everyone, you know, where all countries are going to have to start working um, really hard to reduce their emissions to get to these kind of percentages, which um, everyone's set, um, because it's like now or never, really. Andy, I know that you've been... Uh a long-standing voice on the environment and climate change in Wales. I remember talking, listening to you about 15 years ago, which is the start of my journey in this area. 
Is there anything, you know, Kate or Mark's mentioned which you just want to touch upon before we look at COP in detail about Wales? I think just picking up on Mark's point about land use, I heard a, I heard a figure attributed to NFU Wales recently saying that like 300 farms, 300 Welsh farms were sold last year to non-Welsh funds to plant trees. So there's a kind of a really interesting thing about making sure we don't end up with a land grab by wealthy funds in London just want to do cheap offsetting in effect to allow bad practice to continue. And I think there's a there's a really exciting opportunity to look at, well, what does it look like if we maximise the value of Welsh land, not just for climate, but for wider well-being, so including biodiversity impact, including physical and, and, and mental well-being. And there's some really interesting conversations on the go at that. And I think specifically, um, picking up on Kate's point about the kind of the presence of Wales at COP, there's some great work being done recently by David Thorpe and the team at the One Planet Centre and the new standard that they've created, which is called the One Planet Standard, which is the first externally validated standard that looks at you know, whether or not organisations are living within the constraints of One Planet, including resources as well as climate, is that's going to be um, sort of workshopped at COP26 with Sophie Howe and Jane Davidson and others as a way of helping helping people start to say, where do I fit in this piece of the jigsaw? And I think there's a huge opportunity for Wales to really start grabbing some of the lead that they've got internationally around things like domestic waste waste use, for instance, where we've gone from like tiny percentages to like 68% in a really short timescale to show how small nations, when they get the act together with the right combination of solid political leadership and competent offices in public, how fast you can move in the right direction. Wales had a, an announcement today. We've got the tidal lagoon back on their front pages on the environmental side of things. I, I'm interested in this in many different ways, but could I ask all three of you to just do a quick comment on tidal lagoons and associated uh, environmental schemes? What do you think of that, Andy? I think, it, well, is it time for an election again already? Uh, for, for wrong to me suggest that, it, that these things will be happening just for elections. I mean, the potential, it seemed, of the old lagoon plans that they uh, mark sharks plans seem to be really well worth considering and i think we we need to i guess to recognize that any kind of interventions around large-scale power generation are going to have consequences elsewhere and and i, I find it interesting last time around how much it seemed that the the certification process or the legislative process was kind of held hostage by small groups of people who had leisure interests versus the wider interests of you know, around fisheries or whatever. But I think we need to have these proper discussions. I think it's interesting to see how in their press release they talk about the numbers of, you know, litres of something or number of kilograms of, of whatever it was saved rather than coming out. We need to be rel- we need to be clear about the benefits. But it's, it's good to see it being discussed. I'd like to see the workings before it was finally passed, though. And it's, again, it's a real estate play. 5,000 homes are what makes it valuable. Hey, Mark, is Tidal Lagoon tickle either of you? You want to comment or is it just a, a, a vanity white elephant type of project? I mean, I'm, I'm not overly keen. I was particularly not a fan of this old seven barrage proposal for ecological reasons. I mean, we're all familiar with what those are in terms of the tidal mudflats and the ecological value of those for fish and, and birds and other, other wildlife. I would much prefer to see additional nuclear power capacity because ecologically that's far less destructive than pretty much everything else, which takes up a large amount of, of land or water. But we're going to have to get the clean energy from somewhere and I'm prepared to <laughs> compromise on the lagoon thing if it's going to provide a substantial amount of clean electricity, which is what we need. Um, it's not it's not entirely dispatchable because there's times when you know the tide is high and the lagoon's full that you don't get any power from it, or, or conversely when the tide's low and the lagoon's empty. Um, but it's fairly predictable, and, and to that extent, it's somewhat better than wind and, uh, and and solar, which are not particularly predictable. You know, more than well, solar's not very predictable at all. Wind is predictable a few hours in advance at the very least. But we have big seasonal disparities in, in renewables, which uh, make it very difficult to achieve 100% clean electricity using just renewables. So, I mean, so that's why nuclear is now back in the picture at just about every level in in most countries. But things like tidal power and other large-scale form of, of clean, clean electricity generation. So I don't think we can afford to rule it out. You know, if you're looking at renewables and things like the gas crisis, et cetera, and, um, you know, how are we 
trying to minimize our reliance on fossil fuels then you know you have to talk about the elephant in the room about you know seasonal disparity and you know unpredictable weather events part of the issue is i think we've got something like about 10 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity at the moment and we're, we're trying to ramp it up and that's for the uk um, but however, we had like the least windy period that we've had since like 1961, and that had that knock-on effect in comparison then with also you know the interconnector going down and the gas prices etc. increasing. So I think that something like a tidal lagoon, obviously, as um, Mark pointed out, there's that ecological value and how do we mitigate those risks versus having a more predictable potential clean energy generation source that could potentially be used as some sort of storage facility as well of you know of, of um, electricity being um, generated and not used at, at that exact moment which is what our grid is kind of reliant on so I think that it should be something that should be explored further but as uh, Andy said it's, it's it's a lot of different interests divested all in the same thing and, and wanting different outcomes so how it's actually going to be managed is going to be you know that's that's key on bringing everyone along on the journey isn't it yeah I think that'll be an interesting one I think nuclear and Welsh energy mix is one for a future pod but well I, I want to really want to get into the detail of COP26 now a little bit I'm not sure how much you know but I did a little bit of research and there's, there's four kind of key areas they want to look at achieving things at this meeting. It, number one is to secure the global net zero by mid-century and keep 1.5 degrees within reach. Two, adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. Three, I think uh, you mentioned it earlier, the mobilising of finance, Andy. And number four, I think, Kate, you mentioned it's about working together to deliver those small nations but larger nations. Mark, do you want to just quickly pick one of those and tell us where you think we might have success and which areas you think we might struggle in Glasgow? Well, I mean, you mentioned in the intro that I'm working with the CVF. It's probably worth spelling out a bit more detail about what that is so you can know where I'm coming from on this. Um, the CVF is the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is a group of the 48 uh, most climate vulnerable developing countries. Um, it's currently chaired by Bangladesh, so that uh, I'll be on the Bangladeshi delegation, in fact, at COP26 in Glasgow. Um, I've also been working for many years with Mohammed um, Nasheed, who's, who was president of the Maldives between 2009 and 2012. Um, he, he's also an ambassador for the CVF, ambassador for ambition. So it's, he, he's one of the most prominent and eloquent spokespeople internationally on this. And obviously speaking for, for a country which is probably the most, well, certainly one of the most vulnerable in the world, given that the Maldives faces long-term extinction from sea level rise and, and, and other extreme weather events if this issue isn't addressed and if we don't keep 1.5 degrees on the table. So the CVF was was the really the strongest voice in Paris at COP21, which which kept 1.5 alive. That was their demand, 1.5 to stay alive for us. And when when pretty much everyone else had given up on it, including all the big green NGOs. So the CVF is a is a really it's a really strong body because they cut across all the different negotiating groups amongst the developing world. So it, you know it's a it's a really powerful voice and they've got the kind of moral force as well. Um, we just did a response actually from from President Nasheed. Um, about the 100 billion financing because the UK presidency has obviously tried to move that issue forward, but we're not going to see 100 billion on the table till 2023, which is a long time after, as Kate pointed out, a long time after that promise was initially made. It was first put on the table in 2009, way back in Copenhagen. So it's taken a very long time, and there's still this, uh, you know, 20 odd billion gap in in climate financing. You know, so they're they're really asking. Vulnerable developing countries to just to just trust <laughs> trust the big uh, big the, the richer countries trust the global north we'll come up with the money at some point in the future but you know here's a pat on the back off you go and and let's claim this as a success so I don't think that the the developing countries are going to be going to take this you know lying down it's it's not it's not acceptable to them um, and Glasgow is set up for failure unless there's much more movement on the financing issue um, within the next two weeks. Okay. I think that there's, you know, so there's many areas where it could potentially fall down and it's going to require the collaboration of, you know, of the, the participants involved in the decision makers. Um, in terms of the working together aspect, I understand that at COP26, some of the key objectives are to finalise the Paris rulebook 
And so that's the detailed rules that make the Paris Agreement operational and then accelerate action to tackle climate crisis through collaboration between governance, businesses and civil society. So, I mean, if we, you know, this is as mentioned at the outset of the podcast, um, this is our last chance to basically, you know, come up with the goods to kind of to meet the objective set by the Paris Agreement. So I think that was what something I'll be looking at with close interest is whether that's picked up by the media, etc, reporting on it, because there's been quite good coverage so far, is how far do they go in actually coming up with these, you know, detailed rules to actually make this commitment go beyond COP26 and and what we're going to achieve that way because I think if they can't come to some sort of agreement regarding that as, as say talking about the finance then the modeling that uh, earlier in the podcast can't remember who said it sorry but you know we're looking at if everyone's meeting the NDCs who have put them forward you know we're still looking at 2.4 degrees and that's obviously way beyond the 1.5 that is kind of uh, was benchmarked in in Paris I think they said well beyond under two and then it subsequently become 1.5 so it would be interesting to see, you know, from from the world leaders and from everyone involved there, you know, what can come up with uh, as a solution and um, who is going to be willing to sign up to it, etc. You know, Andy, I'd like just want to just pick up on the point that Kate was talking about there. So the one thing, you know, I never expected to be getting excited about ever in my life was governance because I'm I'm interested in kind of action and so on. But I guess in terms of this working together piece. The one thing that's going to have to radically shift is is the way that we make decisions, particularly at that intersection between government, business, and civic society. And my and my broad take is is that you know the consequences that we're now experiencing, both in terms of climate, you know, and on COP fifteen in terms of biodiversity, are a consequence of the best designed governance systems that specialists can develop. And they're still delivered this future, which is heading towards, as Kate Mark say, towards 2.4 degrees. So if we're going to if we're going to innovate fast enough to invent these different futures, we need to find a completely different wrapper around the way that we make decisions that allows people to experiment without burning the future even faster, and looking at different arrangements that allow multiple multiple stakeholders at country level to take responsibility for creative action. And I. I really think we've only just started that piece. And part of the solution, I think, is based in Wales's well-being a few generations piece, but really learning how to take, you know, build on the work being done by Roman Kaznarik and others to take a much longer view in terms of governance, because we're discounting our great-grandchildren's futures to a 2.4 or 3-degree future. And we need to work out a language that allows us to think about the well-being a few generations, multiple generations ahead in a way that properly takes their well-being into consideration back to the decisions that we make together at that intersection of government, business and community. Well, I was just going to chime in just to say it's worth possibly pointing out what the difference is between 1.5 and uh, and a three degree world in terms of the actual impacts, because it doesn't sound like much, you know, a couple of degrees here or there. I mean, really, who cares? But it is the difference really between a world with no coral reefs and a world with still at least a third of the coral reefs that we have have around today still existing. So that it's zero coral reefs at, uh, above two degrees. Um, large amounts of the planet become uninhabitable within the tropical zone by as you're, as you're moving into a three degree world. We'd see a peaking of global food supplies probably around one degree. 1.5 will see total loss of the Arctic sea ice. So that an open water North Pole for the first time in about 150,000 years, it'll be hotter than it has been since the Pliocene three million years ago. So these are big. This it's a big deal, um, uh, and I, I think it's really important just to to emphasise why this is such an important point. You know, if we want to keep the Amazon going and, and not cross tipping points, which lead to irreversible positive feedbacks within the Earth system, then 1.5 really is um, really is our last chance. And that's why COP26 is so important. And that's why these numbers of 1.5 and 2.4 are so critical. Andy, on the, on the politics of this, I don't know whether you've seen today, but Boris Johnson has said the chances of success from COP26 are, are, are touch and go. Do you think that's politicians now trying to create some sort of expectation management? Or do you think that's sort of an admission that not a lot is going to come from this conference? I suspect it's a bit of both. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the kind of the showman part of him is building up the, oh, you know, it's touch and go, and hey, look what I managed to pull out the bag at the 11th hour. But I guess, you know, broadly, you know, Paris laid these amazing foundations for what's happening, yet we're dragging our feet 
even on relatively small amounts of finance in terms of in terms of what's needed. And you've got you've got Sunak in this country saying that we can't afford to fix the future, despite the fact that the that the maths show that actually the benefits are significantly greater than the cost across these areas. So I'm I'm not without hope um, that that we can do that. But I guess I, I'm more hopeful that of. Um, I'm hopeful now of getting a, 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 some positive responses from, from COP26 than I might have been when the kind of last American runoffs when everyone over here was on Tentook still up until the, the 11th hour. So I wouldn't, I've, been no, I've been no means tuning out and writing it off. I mean, I think there are, there are still great hopes. And I think, as Mark was saying, sometimes it can be the outliers, such as the CVF, who actually pull, who, who switch things through at those kinds of last minutes. But, it, of course, it isn't just up to government by itself to make this happen. It is about that cross-working between sectors. I agree. I wondered when um, I saw that headline earlier whether it was some sort of kind of uh, ex management of expectations to then say, oh, actually, you know, look at us with the heroes. We Look what we've actually managed to do in the face of adversity, you know, just set the expectation low and kind of um, come up. And, you know, I hope that that is the case, that it is a, it's, you know, it's not a flop and you you get some really good um, agreements and ways forward coming out of it. Basically, all of the kind of leading legislation we've put in place as, you know, as the UK and as devolved administrations regarding this area, we're a very knowledgeable country on it. And we, we're kind of, a bit, you know, market leaders in some regards and not so much in others. So I just think it would be a massive shame if this wasn't, you know, jumped on, grabbed with by two hands, because I think we've got a really good potential to you know really push it forward i mean i i agree there's expectation management going on i mean that's fundamental to the process actually and it's a big responsibility being the, the president of the presidency of the cop and i mean what they'll be looking at is the experience of copenhagen which was you started off with all of these you know very high expectations they called it copenhagen we were going to have this amazing global deal and the whole thing just it was a catastrophe and it was partly a catastrophe because it was, you know, it would have been perceived as being an okay outcome hadn't had there not been such high expectations beforehand. Um, and so the Danes really messed that one up. And I, I know that there's people who are involved in the COP26 um, um, presidency now who are very keen not to repeat that experience. How high can expectations be, though, when, when countries such as China and Russia and India aren't as engaged in this process or engaged at all in this process as you would like them to be in order to see real change globally? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the signals that everyone's reading at the moment is who's actually going to attend in terms of world leaders. Scott Morrison was like off and on. Is the Australian, are the Australians going to come? Then it's Putin. Is, is, is Vladimir Putin going to come? Well, no, but, they've, but they have announced that they want to be net zero of a sort by 2060, which is long enough away that no one can ever say anything about it. Saudi Arabia, by the way, is even going to be net zero now by 2060, believe it or not, when they've finished pumping out all their oil. You know, then you've got Xi Jinping, so you've got China, which of course is the absolute, the biggest player of all on the global global scene bar none. They're the biggest emitter, they're the, you know, the, the strongest power really, apart from the United States. And they're not going to come. And I remember I was in the in the heads of state meeting in Copenhagen when the Chinese basically played Obama uh, and, and the rest of the world and just blocked everything by not being in the room because you can't make a deal without China. And if the Chinese don't show up or don't show up at a sufficiently high level, then then you've got nothing, no one, to, no negotiating partner. But I think the Chinese have moved a long way since then. So I'm, I'm not right. I'm not. I wouldn't write that off. And they do also have more on the table than India, which doesn't have a net zero goal at all. And of course, India keeps pointing to the fact that their per capita emissions as a developing country are much lower than ours and you know any any other industrialized any industrialized country, of course. Therefore, why shouldn't they carry on burning coal to develop their country and eradicate poverty and so on? But of course, if they do that, then then that's the budget for 1.5 1.5 shot because it's already been burnt by the it's already been burnt by us rich emitting countries. So that's kind of a fact. The carbon's in the atmosphere already, and there's very little left for the budget for 1.5. So the way that you do a deal has to be really has to be about financing and tech support and things uh, and you know and it also has to you have to kind of reverse the narrative so that it becomes a positive thing rather than a sacrifice so in the cvf we we talk about climate prosperity and bangladesh has, has got a climate prosperity plan where they aim to eradicate poverty and become a middle-income country in the process of moving towards net zero so that's how they actually aim to you know to become a prosperous nation is by being a kind of a winner in the global clean energy revolution so i think if you can if you can kind of invert the narrative and, and make it something that you do to achieve your prosperity to 
to, to, to go for net zero, then perhaps we'll, we'll make more progress. What strikes me is that there's so little work has been done, like at a ground level, in developing countries or over here about about the about in fact like some of the post growth opportunities that can be had by relocalizing economies by by rethinking what happens where and recognizing that there is actually a different kind of prosperity and thriveability that comes from actually do, doing things differently on the ground. And the you know the most obvious example and one one I use often is in, for an, about an amazing. There's a supermarket in Brighton called Hisby, stands for how it should be. They put 11 and a half times more benefit back into the local communities than Tesco do. And, and half the stores unwrapped, which of course reduces, you know, there's, there's so many good stories about it. And I think sometimes when you look at things that are, that are a thousand percent better, that's the way that we can create prosperity at a local community level, not just on food, but around, around relocalizing energy grids, you know, thinking differently about how we move people and stuff around. So I think there are, there is a huge opportunity around that more localized future economy, but it maybe doesn't necessarily involve as many of the big businesses that are the international conglomerates that are trying to sell us stuff. And it might mean that some of that gets more localized. But how much impact can we really make individually, Andy, when countries such as China and Russia and India won't play at the top table and huge companies still continue to admit as well? That's a great question to be asking. And I think just switching your energy provider, of course, is a good thing to do. But I think we, we often never know who the people are that we're going to be talking to, particularly those who are kind of activists in this space. The more active you get, the more, the more chance you get. And, when I, and so talking to, to organisations that manage half of the UK, like the Country Landowners Association, who are up for this because their members need to change. There are, there are loads of ways of connecting to China and other countries at a really senior level through the contacts that just the people on this call have. So I think it's important not to underestimate that, that it's conversations and relationships that start those change. And the more optimistic they are about solutions rather than criticising people, the more likely it is we get invited in to be part of that solution. It's a well-trodden path, the argument of why are we bothering doing anything? You know, China not doing anything, Russia not doing anything, we're just tiny, what can we do about it? But it does start at grassroots as much as, as, you know, as much as as world leaders, it's also, you know, individuals' responsibilities as well. I mean, it was mentioned earlier, David Thorpe and the One Planet Standard, and I think Welsh Government did conduct a report into it to see how much we were consuming in Wales. And I think the amount we were consuming in Wales, just as, you know, as a nation, equated to nearly like three planets. We've essentially got a consumption problem as much as anything else. We've become so used to societies just being able to order whatever we want on our phone, whether that, you know, be from Amazon, et cetera, and it turns up on your door a day later, you don't think about the consequences of where that's come from, et cetera, shipping. We're so used to kind of just having everything at our fingertips and, and just spending, 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 that it's a bit of a narrative that needs to be explored and I think probably isn't enough as to what can the individual actor do as well, because it, it all adds up and makes a big change. If you're consuming less or you're buying more local, if you can, etc., as I kind of Andy alluded to there now, with local economies, etc., then that naturally cuts down the, the climate footprint and it all works towards the end goal eventually. And as you say, there's been commitments to 2060, etc. That's um, by, um, by China, for example... Well, as you say, back in Copenhagen, they wouldn't attend at all. You know, there's already been a shift in that kind of thought process from these types of countries. So who's to say, you know, in the next, <clears throat> by the next COP, there could be another shift again, et cetera. And I think just by demonising countries and writing it off and saying, well, there's no point anyone trying, then well, what's the point of doing anything at all if, you, if that's going to be your mindset? Yes, Matthew, that's your mindset, that is. Um... I, I did have a question about the degrees which we might get to, um, but I, I find it quite depressing. So I think keeping below two degrees is actually going to be very, very difficult going forward. But, you know, one of the other areas I think we've, we've mentioned tonight, and I think it's in part of COP, it's about the adaptation. And I'm just wondering, you know, where do you see things that we should be doing? If we keep it on a local term for Wales, but UK, I'm happy... You know, what do you think we should be doing to adapt to climate change in Wales? Can you can we expect vineyards in the valleys? There's already vineyards pretty close. We've got vineyards in um, in the Black Mountains, and they'll they'll be making their way north. We've got vineyards in Shropshire as well. Um, so steadily encroaching into Wales is the grapevine, you might say. But I mean, to be serious about it, 
it's not just impacts that you that you experience in your geographical area which hit you and the pandemic has taught us that if we have a world food crisis and the price of price of food shoots up or if we get such extreme climate impacts in, in northern Africa that we have a new refugee crisis or the, 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 the conflict is exacerbated. I mean, we're all globally interconnected and it's important to, I think, to, to, to bear in mind that nobody's going to be completely insulated from, um, from the, the impacts of, of climate change. But in terms of what we have to worry about in Wales, I don't think it's just, I think precipitation, precipitation extremes are going to be, are going to be important. So extremes flooding, but also drought. I mean, we get we get longer and more intense dry periods now as well. People think of, of Wales as a wet place. That's another good reason actually to to focus on reforesting the uplands. And I don't I don't mean with with tree planting offset schemes, which I detest. I mean natural regeneration and the return of more functional ecosystems to upland areas, which are which are very good at storing water. You know, I and mean, it's peat bogs and, and all of that as well. Um, so they can help smooth out floods downstream. And there's a lot that we have to do. I mean, they call it the buzzword is, or buzz phrase is climate resilience. So there's a lot that has to be done to, to make us, uh, I mean, I'm actually just over the border in Herefordshire, but us in, in as Wales, um, more, more resilient to, to climate impacts going forward, for sure. Just, just pointed out as a hey boy, you're, you're very much in Wales where you are, Mark. Okay. Well, I pounce as the Welsh borders. I'm actually, I was pleased to start now, but I was just looking out the windows and pretty much everything I can see is Wales. So I hope it, that counts. If, if you are saying that a why you're staying in Wales. Kate? <laughs> Where do you see Wales um, looking at? And there's a lot of things coming forward out of this current Welsh government, which will be looking at that, you know, the public goods part of uh, the, the subsidy for farmers, things like that. What, anything you can see going forward? In terms of adaption and, and Wales in particular, I know, you know, there's a, just looking at the, the weather that's happened over the last couple of winters and the amount of um, flooding we've had, particularly now down in my neck of the woods. So I live um, north Cardiff, but um, you know, got families in the valleys, etc. And and you know, I'm, I live about about three or four miles away from Pontypridd, who obviously experienced horrendous flooding um, a few Christmases back. And just by the geographical location of you know valleys, communities, etc., your water's coming down. As you say, there's no there's um, ecological. Um, destruction where there's no, um, as you say, natural barriers sucking up for water. We've got cold tips, spills and um, coming down, etc. It's um, it's stuff the Welsh government is looking at, and I know that they are, have got it is as part of their pledges into in dealing with things like flooding and the cold tip safety in particular. However, they are quite limited with that because that's not a completely devolved power. So they are at a bit of um, beck and call there of, of UK government and they need UK government to act as well. I think that those are two major things that we're going to have to look at adaption wise in Wales in terms of winters getting wetter. And um, if we are going for more extremes, like how is our housing stock going to, to cope with it? You know, we've got the oldest customer, the oldest housing stock in the whole of the UK. And we live with a lot of people who live um, off grid and are connected. So, you know, the more frequent these chaotic events happen, the more people in Wales are going to be at risk. So it's good this on Welsh Government's agenda, but I would imagine the communities probably want to see things happening a lot quicker, especially as we know we're entering into another winter period now and all that uncertainty that's going to be for those residents and communities that were previously affected. Andy? You know, look, looking back at my time at Natural Resources Wales, I think it's been really interesting to see the conversations moving around adaptation. And, you know, to pick up on both Mark and Kate's point, there's, you know, a couple of weeks back, I think it was, there was a an area of Italy just around near Genoa that had 29 inches of rain in 12 hours. And this isn't the wettest place in Italy necessarily, but there, we, as we get these spikes, spikes of intense downpours, as well as the droughts, that... It's, it becomes so important that, that as, as we've been hearing, that we optimise the level of, of which our ground can actually soak that rain back up and keep it where it needs to be and not pollute the streams, which run off and cause problems down, down the stream at the reservoirs and so on. And one of the conversations I've been having today that's been really interesting with Microsoft is about how can we start to create the information systems that allow people to see the consequence of different decisions around adaptation. So when you do block up peat, and you do lock up more water, you do plant more trees, and you do X, Y, Z, to what levels, notwithstanding these spikes of impact, can you start to create that resilience at a community level that is, that is owned by the whole community and enabled by local and regional governments? So I think for me, making the information on possible changes visible 
so that everyone from a primary school kid upwards can start to get insights and decisions and opportunities is a really important enabler of the kind of the better decisions around adaptation. The only kind of adaptation I want to kind of look at is the economic adaptation that we as people are going to have to, to, to deal with as a consequence of decisions made at COP. I mean, a lot of people are quite concerned, and in Wales, they have a history of being quite concerned about the way that energy and fuel habit change can have on local economies. So whose responsibility do you think it is to ensure there's a just transition between our current economic model, which is, we know, lots of people working in the fossil fuel industry, et cetera, to, to, a, to a new greener economy in the long term? Do you think that's something the COP will have to deal with, or is that something that individual state governments will have to look at? Well, um, of course, Wales used to be a coal producing country um, and there was hardly, I don't think anyone would claim there was a just transition for the, the miners in the valleys. Um, and so that's, that's about the worst it can be in terms of an industry eradicated with, with no thought given to, to, to livelihoods of, of those communities. And, and I think people, I think they do look at that. I mean, the, the UK is going into COP26 with an ambition to uh, basically end coal. I mean, they put it in those terms. So there's, there's plenty of communities around the world that are still dependent on coal producing and plenty of industries and, and wider economies that are, whose livelihoods also depend on that. So what's going to happen with them? I would say for Wales, I think the biggest issue probably is, is agriculture. Um, what a just transition for farming is going to look like, which is less livestock dependent. We're going to have to reduce grazing pressures on the uplands if, if we're going to see any level of reforestation and restoration of ecosystems. Um, there's... You know, a lot of livelihoods and a lot of cultural, you know, a lot of culture of, you know, many decades or even centuries, which is going to change as a result of that. And that's going to be subsidy driven as well. Public payments for, sub for public goods. The Welsh government, in fact, any UK government is yet to set out how exactly that's going to look. But that's going to make huge, huge changes, not just for farmers themselves, but for, for all of the, you know, the, the rural communities and, and livelihoods which depend on, on agriculture. So it's a, it's, a, it's a broad change that we're looking at. And these, these aren't decisions that are being made in COP and imposed on Wales or anything like that. I mean, basically, the way that it works is that the, the national governments in their NDCs volunteer what they're putting on the table. And, you know, the idea of the COP really is to kind of up everyone's ambition and work out some of the, the, the specifics of how the whole thing's implemented. But it's still going to be up to Wales to decide what, what Wales is going to do in terms of both mitigation and adaptation to climate change. Andy, where do you think the balance should lie in terms of responsibility? Obviously, Wales doesn't have complete control over its ability to influence employee Relation, employment relations, working relations, but it's quite a progressive government in terms of its ambition on climate change. But do you think that they are focused in on a green and just transition? I hear some really encouraging sounds from colleagues who work in Welsh government around what the next version of the kind of agriculture offer is going to look like. They will have a, a pretty balanced combination of kind of spare and share, like spare for biodiversity and, and climate. You know, when you look at the fact that there's this you know, strong demand to reduce Strong, strong demand to reduce red meat consumption and at the, to move towards a more plant-based diet. And it'd be a shame that if we missed the opportunity to actually eat vegetables within that, as opposed to eating meat lookalikes from supermarkets. But something like only 0.2 of 1% of land in Wales gets used to grow vegetables at the moment. So that there's a huge opportunity to, to put different kinds of revenue from vegetable growing into farmers' hands whilst actually making the population more healthy and reducing climate impacts. And I think if we're if we're smart about the joined up conversations you have about land use, and we've got there's some amazing people um, in NFU Wales, you know, John Davis is doing a great job to bring people together for different conversations. So I think there's a willingness there to look at different economic models with a frankness and honesty that's perhaps been missing in the past. Hey, what do you think? Do you think that Welsh government are going to ensure that nothing like the disaster of the 80s and 90s coal changes happen again? Or do you, do you think that it will be beyond their control? I think that it depends on what it is. And as you say, it comes down to an issue with what is devolved and what isn't devolved. I can't speak on the agricultural sector stuff, but however, um, from like an energy perspective and looking at kind of new renewable tech that's coming through and things like CCS and hydrogen economies and how those are being delivered at scale or how they're being planned to be delivered at scale. Um, the currently the financial models and the business models are being hashed out by UK government. So it will be interesting to then see who bears the burden of the cost of you know, you know, putting that into practice. 
where that's probably going to ultimately come down to bill payers as it has done with other things and it's the same with you know nuclear building etc and the different types of business models that come around that as well so i mean the cynic in me says it's probably going to end up being pushed on the consumer and you're going to see higher bills etc but the the task there will be especially for Welsh government making sure you know how how does that not affect most vulnerable in society and you know have disproportionate effect potentially as we saw uh, with other industries that might be at risk you know we've got quite a lot of industrial industries in South Wales um, and one of the projects I'm working on South Wales industrial cluster is looking at that and how we can kind of to, to mitigate those emissions but it, you you don't want to risk taking away people's livelihoods just because it's easier to for example cut your cut your carbon by just closing a factory well what's going to happen to the 500 jobs in that local area for example so I think that Welsh government can have a level to play in there and protecting the economy and making that greener but in terms of these kind of big new renewable energy developments that um, are coming through say like hydrogen potentially carbon capture utilization and storage that's probably going to be something the UK government is going to be taking forward which will probably be imposed. Which I'd be happy and happy because Kerry doesn't like my Eeyore style endings so if we had to look towards COP26, if we could all name quickly one thing that we think is promising as we head into to COP26, and we'll start off with Kate. I think just the, the it's on everyone's radar now, uh, people are talking about it in the streets, etc. just the average person, it, it's, it's brought, I think, the pandemic and, and the climate, the increasing crazy weather we're experiencing is put around people's agendas and people want to talk about it a lot more and I think that's a good thing because I'm so used to operating what feels like in the margins when no one cares about what you're talking about that everyone's suddenly like your family is saying yeah well you know what is that all about I think that's only a good thing and if we bring people along in that process rather than thinking oh my gosh she's off again on a crazy rants then um it can only be a good thing Andy what about you my, my take is that there's but by a long margin, there's more willingness now to have big conversations about change than ever has before. And I think picking up on Kate's point, there are a lot more people who are versed in the scale of what needs to happen than was ever present. And so I'm hopeful that whatever any anything ambition, anything ambitious that gets asked for has a much better chance of being turned into action by groups of people working together than we've seen you know, on the back of Paris or anything else. Mark? Yeah, I think there's a real sense of, of momentum now that has never been there before. And I've worked on climate change for over 20 years. And I think we're in a we're in a very different world now. And I think we've passed the tipping point, really, where it's everyone knows we're going to transform to a clean energy economy. We're going to get rid of fossil fuels. Coal's going to be first to go. Then it's oil and gas. The question is whether the transition can happen quickly enough. And, and how we make it as you know as, as pain free and as pros prosperous for for the for the world's people as possible, um, and COP twenty six is going to be a step on the road to delivering that. But it's not just up to governments; it's up to all of us. So we all have a role to play, and um, you know, let's let's get on with it. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for all of you for, for coming to speak to us this evening. If people want to hear more from you and find you on Twitter, where can they go? Uh, Mark, Mark underscore Linus. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Andy. I'm at Grin Green. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And Kate. It's Kate E. F. Evans. Wonderful. Welcome, Barianne, uh, for coming on to speak with us this evening. If you have enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Medium at HereIfeBlogCumry, on Facebook at HereIfeBlogCumry, and on Twitter at HereIfeBlog. Thank you for listening to HereIfe. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.